I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as I go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode of the Executives Exchange, Andy Lansing joins us to discuss his career journey from real estate law to NFL sports agent to becoming president and CEO at Levy. Andy shares how he navigated through the challenges of transitioning to a new industry, the milestones that propelled Levy to another level of success, and more. Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm good, Margaret. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining us today. Happy to. Thanks for having me. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up uh, in Highland Park, so not too far from here. I was a North Suburban uh, kid who um, ended up in Chicago raising my family in Lincoln Park. So uh, worlds apart, but uh, not too far distance-wise. Yeah. I grew up in the Western suburbs. I also did not go very far. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever live anywhere else? No. I mean, the only time that I didn't live in Chicago was when I was in college uh, at the University of Michigan. Oh, yeah. What did you study? Well, I studied political science. uh, And I studied political science because I wanted to be at that point in my life. Um, My career aspirations changed over time. But at that point, I wanted to be a lawyer. And um, everybody told me that I should major in political science if I wanted to go to law school. And at the time, I didn't understand why. And to this day, I don't understand the relevance. (laughs) But I did, and I enjoyed it, but probably might have done it differently had I I known. Yeah. I know it is weird how that's like the pre-med for law school. I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. No. Did you enjoy it? I loved, first of all, I loved college. Um, And I and I really enjoyed political science. But I remember through every class I took, whether it was American politics, modern European, whether it was the Arab Israeli conflict, whatever it was, I just kept saying to myself, what does this have to do with practicing law? And I never really could find that intersection, but it was fine. I mean, it, it was it was enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So. Your career aspirations changed over time. How about when you were little, when you were young, before you went to college? What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, my, the first thing I wanted to be was a doctor. I, I absolutely um, was obsessed with learning about the human body and practicing medicine. I mean, crazy. Like I was reading Gray's Anatomy in third grade. I just thought oh it was gosh. really, really cool. And so I assumed that that's what I was going to be. That changed to a lawyer, which, you know, there's the old joke, uh, uh, the definition of a lawyer is a Jewish kid who can't stand the sight of blood. And that, that was <laughs> what happened in my case. I just, after a while, I got really nauseous and around blood and, and gory things. And I said, I don't think I can make it. So what's what's the next profession? And it, it became uh, a lawyer. Can you watch scary movies? Can you watch horror movies? I like the old school horror movies like the black and white Universal, Frankenstein's, Wolfman, Dracula. I, yeah. I can't watch the more modern horror yeah. movies that are defined as blood and gore and guts. So no, I know. I'm not good with that. Me neither. My husband loves them and I just cannot watch them. Like, yeah. I'm like I, I wish I could. I will try. You know, So he finds ones that are more just scary horror without the, the blood and all that. I'm right there with yeah. you. 
So did you have any big influences in childhood, any people or events that really affected your life and how you think about the world? Well, I, I would, I wouldn't say necessarily a, uh, an individual, you know, I've always answered that question, whether it's early influencers or whether it's, you know, who's your mentor, right? I, I've always felt that anybody who answers that with a one person answer, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to me because I think that early influencer or mentor in my case is like a Frankenstein. It's a little of this person, a little of that person is as much about influencing you, what you don't want to do as much as what you do want to do, uh, how you want to act. How, so, I mean, yeah, obviously there were great influences from teachers to family members to, but there are also influences of people that I saw just in life and I'm like, okay, that's not how I want to be. And I consider that an influence. Yeah. Um, I would say a fun influence is that when, from the time I was really young, I was into magic. I, I was and still am a magician. And uh, we were really lucky in Chicago because we grew up uh, in, in, in Chicago. There still is the world's or at least the country's oldest magic shop. And the biggest treat for me was to go to this magic store because not only was it like a wonderland to me, but it was owned by a really well-renowned professional magician who uh, had like multiple appearances on the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, practice, like all over the world, he was, he was the best of the best. And he sort of um, took me under his magic wing, so to speak, and made me love magic even more. He's famous for saying a kid once asked him a question. Um, hey, you know, I want, I want to be a magician when I grow up. How do I do that? And he said, son, you can't do both. And I just love that concept of uh -huh. you got to always be a kid because I sort of feel that that's, that's me in a way. Yeah. So is Chicago home to like table magic or something like that? I remember reading that it's, there's a certain type of table magic or, yeah. hand or something that originated in Chicago. There aren't a lot of people who know that. Uh, Chicago has always been a magic mecca, but what Chicago really is known for is what we now know as close-up magic, which is that's magic it, that's right, done close up. sort of right in front of you at a bar or at a restaurant, and that really did have its origins in Chicago. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. So people don't know all of this, right? So close-up magic and also storefront theater. Like Chicago is the place for storefront theater. I mean, it's took a hit right now. Hopefully a lot of these will be back. But if you haven't done either of these two things in Chicago, you really need to go for those people listening. There's this great close-up magic um, bar in Andersonville. Do you know what I'm talking about? Of course I do. I'm a member. It's called you the are. Chicago Magic Lounge. Yes. Uh, it's really yeah. cool. It's amazing. I mean, you yeah. walk into this place and it's designed for those who haven't been there. It's designed as a laundromat. So when you're outside, you're yeah. looking into a laundromat, you walk in and there's washing machines that are spinning and you say the magic words and this wall comes open and you walk into this, the most beautiful Mecca of magic you could possibly imagine. So, I know it's uh, so it's cool. Really neat place. Okay. Everyone needs to go. Um, the last thing and then we'll get off of magic, but you also have this really gorgeous Ace of Spades uh, artwork behind you. What is it? Oh yeah. The, um, on my 30th anniversary at Levy, some of my colleagues were nice enough to have commissioned this piece of art for me. 
and it's a it's a jumbo playing card and if you look closely it's made up of all these different words and sayings and things that yeah sort of reflect me and my career there's hot dogs because I'm a hot dog nut there's family there's um you know a baseball there's scales of justice for the law so if you look closely you can see the story sort of of my life and from far away it looks like a playing card yeah it's gorgeous it's Thank really you. really cool Thank yeah you. that's really neat so university of michigan poli sci what next well it was um once I figured out that poli sci wasn't necessarily the only classes that I should take, um, <laughs> I started like taking accidentally other classes at Michigan, which really interested me. And I, I think the my favorite story is after my junior year at Michigan, I I said to my mom, "Hey, I want to go to Europe after senior year between." Between senior year and law school, I want to go to Europe with two guys, and we're going to get a Eurorail pass, and we're going to backpack, and we're going to stay in hostels and go for eight to ten weeks. And the only thing I need help with is the plane ticket. Would you would you possibly be nice enough to buy me a plane ticket? And she did the most brilliant thing in the world to me. At the time, I didn't feel that way, but in retrospect, it was brilliant. She says, "I'll make you a deal. I will buy you that plane ticket." if you take art history your senior year at Michigan. I'm like, no, mom, please. I hate that. Don't, why? Don't make me do that. No, if you're going to be in Europe, you're going to understand right. the things you're seeing and you're going to have context. And so either way, no problem. If you want to buy your own plane ticket, don't, don't take art history. And if you want me to buy it, take art history. I really had no choice. So I signed up for art history and it turned out to be the, my favorite class I ever took in my life anywhere. It just like spoke to me. It was yeah. so amazing. And not surprisingly, when I went throughout Europe, I was like, oh, I know that. I know that. I know that. It made the trip so much more yeah. meaningful. Uh, but that was one of the many examples where mom was right. And I realized that there were other things out there besides just law and poli sci. Yeah. So, uh, so I graduated from Michigan. I, I came back to Chicago and went to law school at Loyola and, uh, I went into private practice. I, I was practicing commercial real estate law, some corporate law. And then by accident, I got into, um, an area that I always had really wanted to get into, but I thought it was impossible. I became a sports agent. Uh, representing yeah. some NFL players, which is ridiculous because everybody wants to do that and it's really hard to do. How did that happen? How did you get into that? It was the craziest circumstances, Margaret. I was this young associate at, uh, at, at this law firm and the head partner came to me one day and he said, look, we, we got a, there's a handyman that does some work for us and he's buying a house on the South side of Chicago. Would you help him close the deal? And I said, of course, be happy to help. So I, I met this gentleman named Richard and I helped him close the deal and we just hit it off. We just, it was a little modest house and I ended up saving him money that he was about to get screwed on and, and, and it just, we hit it off. And so after I closed the deal, we said, 
is there any way I can thank you? And I said, no, my God, Richard, this has been so much fun getting to know you and let's stay in touch. And he goes, are you a football fan? And I go, oh my God, am I a football fan? And he said, well, hey, my cousin plays for the Miami Dolphins. You want to go down to a game? Like, who's your cousin? <laughs> and he says, my cousin's Mark Clayton, one of the Marx brothers. And I said, oh my God, that's your cousin? He says, yeah, why don't we go down to the game? And that was the game most people will remember on December 2nd, uh, the Bears undefeated season Monday night. It was the only game that they lost that season was against the Dolphins. So I said, yeah, I, I went home and I told my wife I'm heading to Miami with Richard. And and she looked at me like I was nuts and said, OK. And so we get on the plane and I said, Richard, I didn't even ask you, where are we staying? He says, we're staying at Mark's house. I'm like what? He goes, yeah, <laughs> we'll stay in his guest room. I said, OK. So we get to the airport and I said, who's picking us up or how are we getting to Mark? He goes, oh, no, Mark's picking us up. So Mark pulls up in a car and picks us up and takes us to practice. And I end up having lunch after practice with him and Dan Marino and Mark Duper, the other Mark's brothers. And and I spent the weekend there and Mark and I just hit it off. Yeah. And he asked me a few basic questions. You know, the good news was that he was saving his money. The bad news is he had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in a non-interest bearing checking account. Those were the days you could make some tax moves and it was December and I helped save him some taxes. Anyway, by the end of the weekend, he says, do you want to represent me? And I'm like, yeah, for sure. As long as you're okay with that, I can't do this all myself because I, you know, I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. So I'm going to bring in some sophisticated financial planners and everything. And he said, totally get it. And I ended up representing him. And the thing about representing professional athletes is, the hardest one is getting your first one. Once you get the first one, mm -hmm. if you do a decent job, they're telling their friends. So before I knew it, I had a bunch of guys on the Dolphins and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and I was I was an agent. So it was really cool. That's incredible. Yeah, I saw Jerry Maguire. I know it's hard to get your first one. <laughs> That's what it's about. That's really incredible. So did you want to do more of that, or was that just a fun side thing? So I did more of it, uh, but I also real like really loved the real estate and corporate practice that I was doing. So I sort of had the stable of clients uh, that I was working on in the NFL and yeah. um, doing really cool things with them. But I was also practicing real estate law, which I which I equally loved. So yeah. it was I felt like I had the best of both worlds. That's really cool. When did you stop? repping professional athletes? I stopped repping them when I came to Levy and joined Levy as general counsel. Okay. So I really couldn't do it anymore, uh, yeah. which was really hard for me to give them up. Yeah. So we've had a few people on this podcast share their very interesting, sometimes funny, either hiring or promotion to CEO stories. And I hear that you also have a pretty good one of getting hired at Levy. If you can share the story with us. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite lines, Margaret, is from a John Lennon song, Life is What Happens When You're Busy Making Plans. Yes. And like that is the story of of um, of me. I really, I think, and this is a good example. I was practicing this law that I was just describing and really happy. And a friend of mine called me and she was the head of marketing at Levy at the time. And she said, hey, our general counsel's leaving. Do you know anyone who would be interested? And I said, not really. Like, what kind of lawyer do you need? And she goes, I'm not really sure. And I said, well, there's different kinds. I don't know if you need a contract lawyer, a real estate lawyer. She goes, I don't know. Will you come have lunch with Larry Levy? And I said, oh, my God, for sure. I've read about Larry. I, 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 I knew you know, about the really cool things that he was doing at the time. So we had lunch. And I was at this point out of law school only for 
like three years, just to put it into context. And at the end of the launch, I said, okay, I get, I got what you need. I understand. Let me give me a week and I'll send you some names of people that I think might be suited. And he said, by the way, just out of curiosity, would you be interested? And I said, no, I, I love what I'm doing. God, I'm so flattered, but I'm kind of living exactly what I want to be doing. And he said, okay, you should think about it. And we moved on. And a week later, I gave him, you know, I gave them the names. And maybe a month later, this friend of mine called me back and she said, you know, you're an idiot. And I said, well, I, I know. I mean, I hear that a lot, but why are you saying it in this case? And she said, how old are you? And I said, uh, 27. And she said, you understand that there are people that they're marching through the office, 30, 40, 50 year old men and women, all of whom want this general counsel job. And Larry really wants to hire you. Why won't you come? And I said, because I love what I'm doing. And she said, will you just have lunch one more time with them? And I said, I will, but I just want to be clear. I'm not trying, this isn't a negotiation. Like I'm not playing hard to get, I just don't want to do it. So, okay. So we have this, uh, with this, I, I had this second lunch with Larry and he, he puts the full court press on, not in a financial, not in anything like that, just in a, you shouldn't pass this opportunity up because it's a really good one. And the difference between successful people and really successful people is that the really successful people spot an opportunity and they take it because it's never coming back. So you should really think about it. And it was on a Friday uh, afternoon for lunch. And I, I said, Larry, you know what? This, and I was saying this, Margaret, just to buy time. I still wasn't going to do it. And I'd like, Larry, just give me till Monday to think about it. You know, uh-huh. thank you so much. I'm flattered. So we're leaving the restaurant. And I totally remember I'm not saying to myself, I'm not doing this. And I got in a revolving door to leave the restaurant. And I take the first turn. So I'm still in it. And something hit me and it's like, you're going to take this. And then by the time I took the next turn and was out on the street, I'm like, you are not. What's wrong with you? So I, I get home. <laughs> Maybe. I get home and I, and I talk about it with, with Ellen. And um, she said everything that an amazingly supportive spouse would say, none of which is helpful, right? Follow your right. heart, you know, right. do whatever your gut tells you to. I'll support right, okay. you no matter what. I'll support you no matter what. If you do it and you're not happy, you there are no bad choices. There are no bad choices. <laughs> Every trite expression uh, that you can imagine. And I don't know why, but on Monday morning, I woke up and I said, I'm taking it. And when I told my family and friends, they like, they thought I was running off to join the circus or something like what you're leaving this law firm life where you're on the partnership track to go work for this smallish restaurant company. What's wrong with you? And I said, I don't know. I just feel like I got to do it. Yeah. So I joined as vice president and general counsel. And uh, I honestly had no business having the job. I, yeah. re- I mean, I really had no business. I, I joined and I can tell you stories about the most severe case of imposter syndrome that you've ever seen. Cause that's what I had. Yeah. Well, I do want to get into that because we have lots of people on the podcast that talk about that too. Um, but how did that serve you, being an outsider, not knowing the industry, having no business taking this job? I'm sure there are benefits to that. Well, it that helped me more when I moved into operations. When I was just on the legal side, um, it was really, boy, I... I just was trying to figure it out as I went along and bluffing my way. I mean, I literally like the first day Larry walked into my office and said, Hey, we need to file a trademark application for this restaurant. Can you handle it? And I said, of course. And he left the office and I said, Oh my God, 
yeah. I, I don't know how to do this. I didn't take intellectual property in law school. I don't know what I'm doing. And You're Googling intellectual no, property. No, this was before the internet. I'm running, oh, right. to the law, I'm running to the law library to try to figure out how to do this. I found nothing. And finally, the next day, I pick up the phone and I call the patent and trademark office in Washington. I got this really nice woman on the phone and I said, ma'am, you don't know me, but I'm going to lose my job if you don't help me figure this out. She's like, relax, we can do this. And she was really nice and helped me. Wow. And, and, I, and then literally later that week, he came in and he said, hey, there's an EEOC complaint. Can you take care of it? And I said, of course. And he left my office and my <laughs> knees buckled. I didn't know what EEOC stood for. I didn't take labor law in, in law school. And I did the same thing. I went down to the state of Illinois building and I found a young guy at the, uh, at the commission. And I said, dude, just, I'll make you a deal. You don't know me, but I'm really fun. If you help me with this, I'll take you out for a burger and beer after work. He's like, that sounds cool. So we did it. And so over time, I, I really did have imposter syndrome. Um, but I kind of woke up maybe a year later and said, okay, I think I, I think I get this. I think yeah. I sort of understand. Yeah. Um, but your question about not growing up in the industry, how did I, how did that serve me is a good one because once I, once Larry sort of pulled me onto the business side of things, and I started poking my nose around into other areas, not just law. Uh, it was really interesting, Margaret, because I would just say to him, hey, I don't understand how we, why we do it this way in yeah. purchasing. Like, why do we buy six different olive oils at our various restaurants? Like, if we bought one or two, wouldn't we get better pricing? And he would say, I don't know, go fix it. So I set up a purchasing department. Or I'd say... Right. Why do we do it that way in human resources? Like it doesn't make sense. And he says, I don't know, go fix it. So I, you know, and I went out yeah. and hired industry leaders in each of those different areas. Um, and I, I knew early on kind of, I wanted to surround myself with people who made me feel like moron every day, uh, like the really smart people. And, right. and I did, and we sort of, over time, he pulled me into full operations and said, okay, now I'm giving you operations. And that's where, I knew nothing. So I would be in our operations and I'd ask, what, explain to me why we do it that way. Mm -hmm. And I would say anecdotally, 50% of the time, there was a really good explanation Yeah, that I just didn't understand. But a full 50% of the time I got the, I don't know, good question. We've always done it that way. And so that yeah. was really helpful that I didn't have that tunnel vision blinders and we could change things. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. So when you got hired, do you remember how big was the business? Oh gosh, we were probably 50, 30 to 50 million in revenue at the time. And what is it now? And pre-pandemic, we were well over 2 billion in revenue and we're on our way now post-pandemic right back there. So wow. been a lot of growth. Yeah, that's really tremendous. So you became CEO in 2006, now up to 2 billion. What was the biggest move or maybe there was more than one that fundamentally changed the trajectory of the business? Was there something that really set you on the growth path? I would say that there are three things that really changed the way we, the way we did things. The first was um, when Walt Disney World in Orlando, when, when Michael Eisner and Frank Wells sort of took over and got their feet planted there, one of the things they realized is that food was Disney's Achilles heel. They did everything right, but they never seemed to get food right. Mm -hmm. And they decided that they were going to go on a national search for the first outside restaurant operator to operate on Disney property. And their theory was, we're going to show our guys how 
others do it. So believe it or not, the small restaurant company in Chicago got selected to open two restaurants in Disney World. And that just changed. I mean, not only was it amazing, it still is. We have restaurants there, but it sort of was like the good housekeeping seal of approval, right? For every right. future potential client, it's like, if you're good enough for Disney, you're good enough right. for us. So that changed it. The second thing that changed it is uh, is getting into the sports and entertainment, which is the predominant part of our business now. And that was really an interesting story. The White Sox uh, were building the first skyboxes in Comiskey Park, the old Comiskey Park, and they had this idea. They thought that if they could get a restaurant company to cater the skyboxes, they could sell it. They could sell them for more money. They didn't want the hot dog and beer guys trying to do the white tablecloth. So they asked us if we wanted to do it. And we said no, like five times. We're not caterers. We're restaurateurs. This doesn't make any sense. And literally, we talked to each other and said, you know what? Let's do it. Like, we like baseball. We'll get good tickets to the game. They'll be in the World (laughs) Series someday. And uh, and we got into that business and sort of revolutionized the way that business was looked at. So yeah. that, I would say, opened the sports and entertainment door and at floodgates because people saw what we were doing and said, oh, wow, it doesn't have to be crap food at a stadium or an arena. You could do restaurant quality stuff. Um, and then I think the third was uh, becoming a member of the Compass family, which is the largest food service organization in the world. And that was uh, in 2000. We did what a lot of companies do, which is you wake up and you say, what do we want to be when we grow up? Like, Mm -hmm. what's our next step? Do we want to buy a company? Do we want to sell a company? Do we want to go public? And we looked at all these options and ultimately uh, struck a deal where we sold 49% of the company to Compass. And later uh, in 2006, we sold the remaining uh, 51% to them. Uh, but that that just changed because it opened up the world to us, and and they've been the most amazing supportive partners. And our really, we were two hundred million when we met Compass, so oh, they wow. put some jet fuel behind us. Fortunately, we kept delivering, and they put more jet fuel behind us, and they've been like the greatest yeah. thing that happened to our company. So those would be the three sort of milestones. Yeah, what have they enabled you to do that you couldn't have done otherwise without the jet fuel? Well, they gave us certain small things and big things like um, best practices. They, ha- they they operate all different sectors. They don't operate as Compass anywhere. They operate as different brands in different parts of the you know, corporate dining, school dining, healthcare, where their sports and entertainment and restaurant are. And so while they let us all in- operate independently, I'm on their board, the CEOs all come together for best practices. They, they, they almost view it as, hey, here's a menu of things we can help you with. Mm-hmm. What do you think? You pick. And so I would go through and say, you know what? I like the way we train. We're going to keep doing our own training. We're going to keep doing our own finance. But, ooh, purchasing. You're the largest purchaser of food products. So I can't believe what I'm paying for Coke and what you're paying. I'm going to piggyback on your food purchasing. So that was yeah. huge yeah. for us to get that kind of leverage and other best practices. But I think probably the biggest thing is, is they had essentially unlimited capital for us to grow for the right kind of deals. And we used it and grew and it would not have been that way if we were on our own. Yeah. Did you ever consider leaving along the way? I never have. I, I, I just, I, I think the factors that go into that are, I always felt and still feel like this business is mine. Like yeah. it's, it's my, like I own this business, even though clearly I don't. And so it's, you know, 
my family is by far the most important thing in my life, but this company is like really a close second. Yeah. And so I just have always had this fire, this passion for growing it and, and helping people develop amazing careers. And I never once thought there's something out there. You know, all of us get calls from people and I just, I never even took the calls because I'm, I'm so, I'm still so happy here. And I, and I always say, cause I don't know, I must be getting old cause people say to me from time to time, how much longer you want to do this, which is um, shocking to me that people are asking me that, but I guess that's what happens when you get older. And, or you and get I, lifetime achievement awards. Just or you get, right. or, or you're once you get one of those for 34 years, which is not going to happen anymore to anybody. Um, and I always answer it the same way. I say, you know what? I don't know, but what I know is I have this fire in my belly now and sometime I'm not going to have it. And whenever you see as an example, a professional athlete who's retiring, they're always asked why now? And it doesn't matter the sport they're in or how long they've been doing it. They always pretty much have the exact same answer, which is I just knew it was time. Yeah. And that could mean I lost five miles an hour in my fastball. It could mean I can't go through another spring training. I can't, whatever it is. Um, and I just know someday the fire will flicker and I'll say it's time. Um, but right now, God, I feel like I'm still new at it and I'm learning and we're growing and the best is in front of us. Yeah. Oh, that's really great. Um, how old are your kids? Uh, 26 and 23. What are they doing? My daughter works in Chicago um, for Facebook. Oh, and. Yeah. My son just graduated uh, in May from the University of Michigan. He was, among other things, a head manager for the basketball team. And he started a really remarkable business called the Players Trunk, which helps uh, college athletes sell their game used gear and jerseys and practice things. And he's got a tiger by the tail. He started a business with a couple former basketball players and, uh, it's been pretty crazy. Um, and it's yeah. been fun watching him sort of create this business and it's been, it's been pretty successful. Um, do you still go to Disney world? Are you the kind of family that went there all the time? Because you, you have to be kidding me with that question because it's our life. Our kids yeah. grew up in Disney world. I, yeah. we were down there multiple times a, a year for business and for fun and, we did all the Disney cruises. I, I got a Disney family. We know every word to every song, every word to every movie, every ride down there. So yeah, they That's still so love it. That was the greatest thing. When we, when, when my daughter turned 21, we said, Hey, we'll take you on a trip anywhere in the world. You want to go to Paris? You want to go to London? She goes, can we go to Disney world again? And I was like, Oh my God, I'm melting. So yeah, we are Disney nuts. That's great. So my boys, I have twin boys, they're six and a half and uh, their birthday is February 28th. So we were going to take them, um, two years ago. And then the pandemic, like things were a little weird. We're like, ah, let, we'll just go next year. And then that didn't happen. So we're planning it this year. We'll see. So it'll be when they turn seven, um, hopefully they're vaccinated by then. I hope we can still do it, but it'll be the first time they go. I'm really well, if excited. you need any tips, let me know. And if you'd like to go to some good restaurants, I really know some that you can go to at Disney World. I hear. <laughs> Although you can't book them. It was interesting. We were able to book everything, but you can't book the restaurants until like a certain amount of time out. Well, I think I can help you with that. Do you that. know someone? Okay. I might have a little juice there, so. <laughs> we'll follow up on that. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Shore Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. Um, so I was doing my research on you and I read a really great uh, quote of yours that I would love for you to talk a little bit more about in terms of how you think about the business, that the people working in your corporate offices are the least important people in the company. Yeah. I, listen, I don't know if this is original with us. It's probably not, but it's uh, it's something that we that I learned from Larry at Levy and, and it's this concept of the inverted pyramid. And, and I really believe that the least important people are the ones that are sitting in offices and the most important people are the ones who are touching our guests and dealing with our guests every day. I mean, I, I, my executive team can be brilliant, but if you're having awful experiences in our restaurants or stadiums or arenas, like we're done. So literally our mentality is everything to help and nothing to hinder mm-hmm. everything to help our operators, give them the tools that they need to, to be successful, take away any barriers whatsoever and 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 make them know that they're the rock stars not the executives not the people who are above them on a traditional uh, organizational chart because we're all beneath them on the levy organization chart so i believe that really strongly margaret so what's an example of how that shows up well again it shows up in how our guests are treated i mean literally think about it if you come into one of our restaurants and you have uh, your experience there is going to be decided, yes, on the food, but most importantly, on the way you're treated. Are you treated like you're a guest in our home or are you treated like it's very transactional? Mm-hmm. And if you're treated the right way, you're going to come back. You're going to tell people about it. And if you're treated the wrong way, the opposite happens. And it does not matter how smart we are here as executives. It doesn't matter. It's it's what's happening in that location. And yeah. so that's 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 it at its best. Okay. So there are a few organizations that have had the level of COVID disruption as yours. I mean, you've been hit at every angle, right? Restaurants sports venues, hospitality, things like Navy Pier. So let's talk about it a little bit because you've been navigating this really well. What was the hardest part to work through over these last 18 months? Well, the hardest part was just figuring out what we were dealing with and then how we were going to deal with it. I mean, early on in the pandemic, like so many others, if you're honest with yourselves, you know, many of us had the attitude of, come on, they're overdoing this. It's not as bad as they say. And why are they making such a big deal? Isn't it just the flu? And then it was like, you know, two weeks later, it's, oh shit, this is really serious. They're canceling events of ours, a tennis tournament, then all the conventions canceled. And it was like a domino effect within days. Just imagine within days, a a, a 2 billion plus company just comes to a virtual halt. I mean, literally it was, we got hit right between the eyes as bad as any industry there could be. Right. So, you know, as everybody has written and talked about, they don't teach you this one, right? There's no playbook for this one. And, Mm -hmm. 
I just remember sitting down with our senior team regularly, every day for multiple hours, trying to understand what all this meant and, and just coming up with a couple of guiding principles that I thought would help us go through however long this would last. None of us thought it would be this long. But I remember saying to our folks, look, this is serious stuff. Like we are about to navigate treacherous seas like we've never seen. Obvious. I mean, we survived strikes, we survived lockouts, we survived recessions, all the other things that we thought hit us between the eyes until we saw this. And so I think my first sort of guiding principle was I didn't want us to overreact and I didn't want us to underreact because either of those things would have been wrong. We just had to take measured steps along the way. The second thing is I wanted us to try to lead with equal parts of heart and mind. Like if we just approached it with our heart and said, oh, you know, we have to keep everybody in their jobs and pay everybody, even though we have no revenues, like we'd be out of business. You can't do that. And on the other hand, if we led with just our minds and started slashing and burning, I knew we wouldn't emerge um, with the same company we had going in and sort of. The third one was, look, we had a remarkable business going in, and I was convinced that we were going to have a remarkable business coming out. And so we had to strike that balance of how you navigate this time while keeping the culture of your company intact, because I didn't believe at the time, maybe I was naive, I didn't believe that our business was going to be fundamentally changed forever like other businesses from the pandemic. We could debate how long it was going to last, but I felt like people are going to want to be in person at sporting events, at concerts, they're social. And um, we've seen sort of what that looks like. Yeah. Um, what part of the food supply chain was the most bizarre disruption? Like, was there something you just could not get? It's going on right now. Yeah. I've like been, during I've the been reading this, like America's I mean, running out of everything, I think was the headline of a New York Times story. <laughs> it's it's literally like, you know, hard to get chicken wings. And I mean, think about all the NFL and college stadiums that yeah. we run. I mean, we had to have sort of this militaristic planning on here's who we're going to get the chicken wings from. But company B has to be on standby at this NFL stadium if company A can't get it. And we also have to have a company C lined up to do it because you can't not have chicken wings at a stadium. But name it. Name the food product, name the supply from cups to packaging to paper goods. It is as bad as uh, as we all see on the news. Yeah, I know. It's really wild. Uh, are you? It's interesting because dispersed supply chain, there was reason to be consolidated. Are you going to think about it differently now going forward? No, I think we, we had phenomenal purchasing practices going in. Yeah. And, and while we've had to sort of call audibles along the way, you know, my, my hope is that we get back to those yeah. and don't have to have the triple backup belt and suspender protection and things that we're doing now. So, um, I hope that's not a permanent casualty. I think it'll, I yeah. think it'll come back eventually. Who knows when? Yeah. Yeah. I'll ask what you were forced to innovate in your business that has made you even stronger that you might not have done or maybe done so quickly otherwise. I think one of the things that, that the pandemic allowed us to do and encouraged us to do was to 
basically switch to completely cashless models at all of our stadiums and arenas. Uh, and that is so much more efficient on yeah. for tons of reasons. People like it. It takes the cash out of it. Obviously, shrinkage goes away. You don't have to have armored cars. You, there's so many good reasons for it. Um, and what I would say to you is that was probably a three to five year plan for us. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's done. It's yeah. done. Basically, every place we are is is cashless. And so that's made us more efficient. That's made uh, our guests happier. And a, a good benefit of that is people end up spending more on um, on apps and on things. And when they take money out of their pockets or cash out of their pockets. So it's been a good thing for everybody. And that's yeah. something that would have taken, as I said, three to five years yeah. to get throughout the whole system. So food supply chain, some big events, you know, not fully back online yet. Anything else that you're still working through? Well, what's interesting to us is I think the velocity with which our business came back caught us by surprise in, in a really good way, in a, in a really good way. Um, it came back way faster and stronger than we ever suspected. Like September yeah. was the biggest month in the history of Levy for revenue, which is shocking because oh, wow. we went from huge to nothing to huge again. And I think there's a, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. Again, this pent up demand, you know, mm-hmm. people have referred to what we refer to as, as revenge spend. People are just so excited to get out there and spend money that, I mean, they're spending like drunken sailors right now. There's people who like, I'm totally cool buying a $12 beer. And not only am I going to buy one, I'm going to buy three because I've been in my house for 18, yeah, 18 right. months and I'm dying to get back. So I think it's that. I think it's the cashless has helped the per caps go up. But the velocity with which things came back was stunning to us. The thing that hasn't come back, not surprisingly yet, is business travel. And if business travel is not back yet, then our convention center business is still relatively slow versus um, pre-pandemic. And I think conventions of the future might even look different permanently as opposed to um, going back to the way that they've been in the past. So that's been the slower piece for us. I know. It's going to be really interesting. And it's so critical for Chicago, right? I mean, the convention business, it's been really tough to work through. Completely. Um, Well, and speaking of Chicago, because we are a Chicago CEO podcast and you're a Chicago company, um, a lot of people are talking about the future of Chicago and what's needed and how the business community can help. So I'm curious if you had the keys to the kingdom and a magic wand like Disney, uh, what's the one thing you would do for Chicago? Look, I, I, I probably not alone in saying this. We have to figure out the violence. Yeah. We have to figure out how to get that under control. It's, it's not only frightening for all the lives we're of course losing and the people that are being hurt by this, but what it's done and will continue to do to businesses, to people who want to live downtown, to people who want to come downtown. I mean, I've had so many people, you know, you live in Chicago. Oh my God. Like, are you dodging bullets every day? We won't come to Chicago. It's so scary. Or people who said to me, look, I normally would come to your restaurants on a Saturday night. My husband and I don't feel comfortable coming downtown. And so the business and the human ramifications of the violence is just so scary and um, 
and that would be my magic wand if I could wave it. Yeah. We love doing fun lightning rounds because people love getting to know our guests a little bit mm. more on a personal level. So I have, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 things. Um, we can go real fast. Don't overthink okay. the answers. Okay. Something not everyone knows about you. I think that I, that I'm a magician and I love yeah. practicing magic still. I, I love yeah. doing magic every day. What's your favorite trick to perform? Well, I like the close-up tricks. I don't, I'm not as big a fan of the big stage illusions and things. So I like things that are done right under your nose, whether it's with cards or small, normal items. So I like just sort of one-on-one -on -one cool magic. Yeah. Is there anything you're still working on a trick that you just can't do? Oh my God. There's so many that I try to practice every day yeah. that are just involve really sophisticated sleight of hand that I just, when I think I'm there, I'm not there yet. When I think I'm almost ready to show somebody I'm not. And, uh, yeah, it's the, the one thing about magic is you're never sort of there you can conquer something. And then the next thing seems unattainable. Yeah, I know. Um, Oh, we talked about this in our prep call. Like another great pandemic thing is this magician online, Dan White. Yeah. Um, my husband yeah. and I did this for our anniversary because it was like in the heart of the, like couldn't go anywhere. And it was so cool. We got this box at our house and then it's this online show and the things that were revealed, I, I still can't. Pretty crazy, out. huh? How about, really? how about when you pull that card at the end? Yes. Attach yes. the ribbon, right? Yes. And, and you know, the craziest thing, Margaret, is nobody, including me, if you would have said, hey, how does magic work over Zoom? I'd be like, no, no magic no. is. Yeah. <laughs> and he is one person and there are others, but he is one person who really blew the back of our heads off with his magic that was done by Zoom. I know. We have all these great recommendations for people listening. That's another one. A great thing to do in the middle of, of winter is do this magician online. Super cool. Uh, okay, I have an art question. You can only have art from one period. What do you pick? Oh, impressionism. Claude Monet, water lilies, haystacks. That's me. Yeah. Who would be your dream sports player to rep? I'd have to say LeBron. And it's not only because, uh, you know, he's the best basketball player today uh, or has been. It's that he was really the first to me to bring together um, sports, culture, music, social justice. And so I think that, that representing him would be amazing because whatever he touched, he just sort of had this ability to turn a company into something really special and, um, and be the right kind of spokesperson. So I, I think the, the opportunities with LeBron would be endless and they yeah, are. Yeah. So multifaceted. You'd be, you know, hair hands in so many things. Last show you binge watched and loved. <laughs> there's a couple of them because uh, I was never the guy that was watching all these like world-class series on TV when they were happening. So I'm really late to the game, but <laughs> Ellen and I, 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 we watched so many during the pandemic, but the two that I was like, I cannot believe how much I love these and that I didn't watch them when they originally came out was, uh, was Mad Men and Sopranos. Like yeah, those yeah. two, I'm like, okay, I get why people love these so much. Yeah. So I got a lot of catching up to do before I do all the modern stuff. You're not alone. Again, like all of the CEOs in the podcast, same situation. So they are saying those same shows and like Breaking Bad, like stuff that oh they just God, are yes. so excited that they could finally get into the zeitgeist. Something not everyone knows about you. 
Something that everyone knows about me? Not everyone knows about you. Okay, here's one that nobody would ever guess. I was shot by a Navy SEAL. <laughs> <laughs> now there's a story. Where? Tell the story. Yeah, because I live to tell about it. So uh, a couple of years ago, our head of security said to me, hey, um, I don't know if, if, if you'll go for this, but uh, the Navy SEALs are looking to do a middle of the night drill in an office building simulating a hostage taker. And they need an office space to work in so that they can come and and literally the Navy SEALs come and and practice how they would handle a hostage taker at a high rise building. Would you would you want our offices to be used for it? It would be, you know, throughout the middle of the night. And I'm such a geek. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 for sure. Can I be there? Like, of course, no problem. So he said, not only can you be there. But I think they would let you play the role of the hostage taker. So I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. So we couldn't tell anybody. We had to tell everybody at work. They had to leave at four o'clock that day because, I don't know, there was office cleaning or something going on, repainting. And uh, all night long, we had a Navy SEAL team in here. And they outfitted me in you know, a helmet, vest, they gave me a paint gun, they all were using paint guns. And I was holding, interestingly, my daughter as the hostage. Oh my so gosh. they didn't tell the SEALs, all of them where we were. So they hit us behind this door area. And they said, Look, when the SEALs come in and find you and say, drop the gun, they're going to keep shooting you with these paint bullets until you drop your gun and surrender. So our advice to you would be drop the gun really quickly. Uh huh. So it was crazy because we're standing behind this door where they don't know where we are. The guys who are literally searching the space and we hear them screaming at each other. We hear all the commotion out there. And all of a sudden the door comes flying open. They start screaming here, 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 here. And they start shooting me with the paint guns. And I, I don't know. I think, I guess I just panicked and froze and I didn't drop my gun. So <laughs> oh my they just God. kept shooting me and shooting me. And I'm like, "Ow, this is hurting. So I, I sort of turned my, my side to them and they got the side of my leg, which is blew through my pants and, and, wow. and literally like had a pretty good leg wound, even though it was a paint bullet, it was up close. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and afterwards they were, like, why didn't you drop your gun? We would have died. I'm like, I don't know. Obviously, I'd be so dead by now if this was in real life. And so I do. I have this little scar now, which I can't tell you how proud I am of it. Because think yeah. about that. How many people can say they were shot by a Navy SEAL? And they yeah. were. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That nobody knows. Very few people know that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's a really great story. Favorite stadium food? Hot dogs by far. I can't. I eat so many hot dogs. I cannot go. You would think I'd get sick of them now. If I'm in yeah. three of our stadiums or arenas a week, I eat three hot dogs. I still, I, it's my favorite thing. Actually, while a lot of people during the pandemic had their own pandemic, either they grew a beard or they did whatever, I went yeah. on a hot dog hunger strike. When the pandemic started, I said, I'm not eating a hot dog till our first event in a stadium. Oh, wow. So I was, uh, I was, I was in trouble for a while, but I made it through and the first hot dog was so good. So good. What'd you have on it? 
I go Chicago style if I can, drag I it through too. the garden. I just yeah. like the classic Chicago dog. But when I'm I in other it. cities, I got to go with their version of their hot dogs too. But there's nothing like a Chicago dog. Um, what city has the most bizarre style? Um, you know, it, de- it depends. I, 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 some of the Southeast excuse me, Southwest dogs are a little funky for me, these Sonoran style and Mm -hmm. it's a little Tex-Mex. I'm not crazy about that. I'm good with, you know, like Cincinnati dog with chili on it. I'm good with things like that, but some of these things get a little funky and um, it's, it's not for me, but I'll still eat it. Don't get me wrong, but (laughs) I'll still eat it. (laughs) You can have one superpower, invisibility or flying. I'm going to say invisibility because I think it would be really cool. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in our locations all the time. I'm, I'm traveling and yeah. I'm always in our locations. And I'd like to believe that the experience that I'm seeing is the exact same experience that happens all the time. But sometimes I think they stack the deck for me when I'm there. Right. Uh, and I get that. I, I understand it. But I just wish sometimes I could just be invisible and see how our operators are doing and walk the kitchens and just see how people are interacting. So definitely visibility. Um, Okay. Two more favorite emoji. By far the laughing emoji, because I just love humor. I love people who don't take life too seriously, who laugh. I think laughter is the best tonic there is. And the shortest distance between two people is humor. So to me, the more you can smile and laugh, the better. Yeah. What's in the trunk of your car right now? Well, here's where Ellen and I differ because I like a very clean trunk with nothing in there. So there's, there is an ice scraper, a snow scraper, and an umbrella. Uh-huh. That's it. Whereas Ellen <laughs> has this like end of the world box back there that that has, you know, warm clothes in case you're stuck on, you know, on the side of a highway and probably some food items and, and a bunch of other yeah. things. So that's a big difference between us, but I'm, I'm a clean trunk guy. Yeah, that's great. Um, and then my last one, the coolest thing that you've gotten to do because of your job. There are I know so- it's probably a list of a hundred things. No, it's, it's definitely some of the most remarkable events that we've been able to do. I mean, if you would have told me when I started Levy that we would, that we would cater the food at the Grammys or at the Kentucky yeah. Derby or at the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament or Super Bowls, World Series, it's like sometimes I sit and I'm watching the Grammys and seeing the amazing work our people are doing, I'm like, I just can't believe that this company that started as a single delicatessen in Water Tower Place is like on a on a national, actually international stage right now. And so I don't say it to be boastful. I say it because I'm in awe of it when I, I, I sometimes have to call a time out and pinch myself and say, like, I cannot believe you're you're here right now with this company doing this. So the, the moments for me are are those big events where you just, you just are in awe. Yeah. Congratulations on all of your growth. It's really incredible. Um, you are an honor to have as one of our Chicago companies. We're so glad that you're here and looking forward to see what you do for the next 30 years. <laughs> Thank you, Margaret. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. 
The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at